the where New Orleans is sited today, there used to be an, a Native American trading village called Bulbancha, which means land of many tongues in the Choctaw language. And so when we think about the fact that settler colonists chose New Orleans, we obviously geography played a role. But there also were people who were living here and living in this region for thousands of years before these settlers came. They also influenced that decision to put New Orleans there. I'm Erin Hardnett. And I'm Amber Mitchell, and you're listening to Tilling the Soil, a Whitney Plantation podcast. In this season of Tilling the Soil, we will be exploring various conversations surrounding the environment. And you are listening to Tilling the Soil, a Whitney Plantation podcast. In this season of Tilling the Soil, we are exploring various conversations surrounding the environment. And today we complete our special two episode series that follows me and my colleagues on the Louisiana Bucket Brigade environmental racism tour. Before we begin the second portion of this series, we would like to issue a content warning for graphic descriptions and language. Last week, we left you with the sounds of sirens from the shell plant adjacent to the second stop on the tour. We are still uncertain at the nature of the siren, but around that time on the tour, we all started to feel unwell. I developed a headache. I started to feel pretty nauseous, kind of lightheaded. It was alarming. It was really alarming. And I also started to develop a headache. And this kind of was precipitated by actually kind of this wafting odor that smelled almost like burnt tires. Like we were hearing sirens and I believe that it was caught on the audio that I said that it smelled like burnt tires. And that was kind of the time that I developed a headache behind my eyes and just like this general feeling of unwellness. For the first half of the tour from me, I didn't experience any of those symptoms, but as we started to kind of progress through the tour and spend more time outside, that's when I started to develop a very, I don't know, it wasn't a normal headache. It was very much specific to the sounds and the smells of the area. And I feel like being a resident of the local area kind of allowed me to endure the environment for a little bit longer, but overall, I still had the same symptoms as you guys. I I should also note that whenever I started to feel unwell, I think that part of me was telling myself that like, this is all in my head. Like this Mm -hmm. is just kind of like the somatic manifestation of stress. Like my body is just reacting to me receiving this kind of distressing information. And Mm -hmm. it's just giving me a headache. Like I am just upset. Mm -hmm. So I'm getting a headache and it is not necessarily attributable to kind of the environment that we were in. But honestly, the more that I reflect on it, the more that I actually believe that, you know, like that burnt rubber smell, the sirens were actually the cause of of the headache and like the general kind of unwellness. Mm -hmm. Right. I also think, yeah, there's all these factors. There's both like multiple physical factors, like what you're talking about, like in terms of the senses, it's not only smell, 
but also sound like the constant sort of buzz of that factory. But then even beyond the physical factors, the emotional factors. So it was just really confusing trying to like pinpoint why we were feeling the way we were feeling or why, at least for me, why I was feeling the way I was feeling. And I do think now reflecting on it, the distinction doesn't really matter in some ways. Yeah. And given that we had only been in the environment for like 90 minutes Mm -hmm. in that particular area of Louisiana, like Diamond said, like she is from the area, but like not from that particular area. And since we had already started to feel so bad in 90 minutes, like there also was, you know, this feeling of, I cannot believe that, you know, this is someone's daily experience. Like maybe they don't have this, this type of headache every day. Maybe they in some ways get used to it, but like that is not really something that you get used to. Like hearing constant sirens, like constantly like having like these just like unknown odors from unknown sources waft over. I don't think that that is something that you can get used to, even if your body kind of adapts to it. And the the thought that that is the norm for residents in this area is sickening in and of itself, right? That's a whole nother, yeah, it's, yeah. We next traveled to a site that I was previously familiar with, Bonnet Carey Spillway. We parked in a gravel lot on the bank of the Mississippi and the spillway flanked parallel to the river. All right, does anybody know where we are? Bonnet Carey Spillway. This is a flood control operation right there behind us that basically whenever the river gets dangerously high, they open this pin by pin and that excess water flows out to the Gulf of Mexico, thereby protecting New Orleans from being flooded. It was built between, um, it was built after the great Mississippi flood of 1927, between 1929, 1931. What's something to consider, however, is when we open it to release that excess water, it ruins shrimpers and fishermen's catch because the fresh water messes with the marshy salinity of the Gulf. And smaller towns that are outside the levee protection system, they may be sacrificed. So it saves larger ones, but yeah, what about those that are out of the levee protection system? The river is fluctuating a lot. So even though a lot was put into building the Bonacari, I don't know if man can continually evolve with the way that climate change is going. Now, let's talk about where we are. If you look across the river, that's Dow Chemical. It's built on the site of four former plantations. Where we're standing here on the Bonacari Spillway, there used to be two cemeteries. Actually, Union soldiers were buried in those, black Union soldiers were buried in those cemeteries. Now, we can also see there's all these barges in the river. A lot of these barges are carrying this thing I'm shaking in my hand and I'm gonna pass around. Anybody know what these are? Okay, oh, wait, that's plastic. That's plastic oh, and they are beads. Yeah. yeah, they're called nurdles. They are plastic beads or pellets yeah. that are kind of like the pre-production for anything plastic. Yeah. These things are so dirty to make. They are toxic and these barges are not required to handle them with care mm-hmm. because the International Maritime Organization does not classify them as hazardous. So they end up leaking into our waterways, Um, birds eat them, fish eat them, and then we end up ingesting them. You'll find these all around uh, the Gulf Coast and actually around the world. Now, let's think about this landscape and how it's changed since settler colonists came here in the late 1600s. So the lower Mississippi River Valley here in the Delta 
uh, it's kind of new land if we think in terms of the geological time record. This area was, is an alluvial floodplain. It was kind of, I guess, built, I don't know if that's the right word, it, but in the last 6,000 years or so. So when French settler colonists came here, the, there was no levee system, right? This was all marshy swampland. It would change seasonally with the elements. The Mississippi River is very sinuous, like a snake. It wants to skip and jump and create these like marshlands, you know? It does not want to be bound and controlled like this. It's not supposed to be. There were numerous indigenous tribes people that lived in this very fertile region. The Homa, the Chirimacha, the Atapak Ishak. These are just a few of the tribes. There were many, many more. In fact, the where New Orleans is sited today, there used to be an, a Native American trading village called Bulbancha, which means land of many tongues in the Choctaw language. And so when we think about the fact that settler colonists chose New Orleans, we obviously geography played a role, but there also were people who were living here and living in this region for thousands of years before these settlers came. They also influence that decision to put New Orleans there, right? The only UNESCO World Heritage Site in the country is in Louisiana at Poverty Point. It's an ancient mound that tribes people made. So we know that this region here has always been part of a larger network of trade and language and cultural exchange, okay? So that's, that's, the, that's how it was when the French came. Now, they stole this land from indigenous tribe people and Africans were kidnapped from their homes and brought here to work the plantations that were built on this stolen land. So now the petrochemical industry of today has a lot in common with those plantations that once existed here. In particular, there are three main things they needed. They needed land, right? Plantations needed vast swaths of land for their enterprises and so do these plants. They needed the river as an access source for their goods. The final thing is a political system, however, that will facilitate the abuse of people, right? The plantation, slavery economy, entirely built on the abuse of people, and the petrochemical industry economy of today, also built on the abuse and exploitation of people who are living in these communities. I'm going to talk now about ideology. I have here images of some Confederate money. We have images of like genteel white femininity supported by these laborers, right? We have white men. We have enslaved people who look very, very, how to say, like well-fed. They, they don't have any wounds on their body. They're not missing any limbs or anything, but we know that these things happened. This is blatant propaganda, right? To show that this was an institution that wasn't that bad. Now let's flip this over. We're going to look at some more propaganda. This is an old sign for Norco. Remember, we started our tour in Norco. Let's look how the small town of Norco is being depicted. I passed the sign in Norco Development Council or whatever, and they have something very similar to this, but not exactly. But on their sign, on their logo, it very much is pollution coming out of the out of the out of the stack. Like this one, it could look like a cloud. Although it does look like smoke, and there's it is definitely smoke coming out of there. So it's just in, like part of the the way they market the community. Mm -hmm. It's the pollution. Yeah, it's sh showing that hey, it isn't so bad, right? It's part of our happy image of a thriving community, which is just really so uh, surreal if you think about it. 
Now, let's talk a little bit about Norco. I mentioned earlier that oil was discovered in Louisiana in 1901. Norco was formed in 1916, and then they built a small factory town so that the factory could have workers really close. And this is why people in Norco are quite proud, sometimes you will see, of the facilities, and they have a strong sense of identity with it because it's one of the, like, there's been a plant here for over a hundred years, right? So it is a very strong sense of their identity is tied with it. Now, something that these plants often say if people complain about pollution is that we were here first. Why are you complaining about pollution? You moved here. This is not entirely the case, right? Belltown existed before Norco. And I didn't mention it until now, but there used to be a small black town called Cellars that was here. And people of Cellars lived here before Norco moved in. Now, where there is power, however, there is resistance. And a little bit upriver from here and across the river, the largest enslaved uprising to take place in North America started, the 1811 Enslaved Rebellion. Now, it started on January 8th, 1811. They, they had several leaders. One of the main ones was Charles Deslandes. There were two Akan warriors, Cook and Quamana. And what they wanted to do was go to every plantation from where it started all the way to New Orleans, liberate each plantation, get new recruits, get new weapons, make it to New Orleans and create a free black state that other people could self-liberate to. And they're also really influenced by the Haitian Revolution. Some academics say you should study these two in conjunction, right? Because they had such a strong Haitian presence here. We're gonna to go to our fourth stop now. It's near the town of New Sarpy. At this point, the heat and hunger had gotten to us. So, parked between an oil refinery and a row of houses with yards full of children's toys, we paused for a snack. A jogger completed her run along the St. Charles community path, proudly sponsored by Valero, and returned to her car parked beside ours. We're standing now in the small town of New Sarpy. New Sarpy, as you can see, is literally on the fence line with Valero, very, very close. And Valero has a lot of these huge tanks. These tanks are storing petroleum in various phases of refining. Some of it's going to be used for things like jet fuel, and some of it's going to be used for consumers like us in our cars. Valero is the largest refinery company in North America. This particular facility refines over 340,000 barrels of oil per day. And in terms of leaking and causing odors, they're notorious. I always notice a smell around here. As soon as we started getting close to the tanks, I smelled it. The lids on these tanks cannot be kept securely on because you don't want to cause an explosion, you know, so they're kind of loosely kept on, which leads to a lot of leaks. In fact, New Sarpy has the dubious honor of being the site of the largest tank fire in recorded history. It was so large, it made it into the Guinness World Book of Records. Could someone please read that entry and let's let's dissect this. The largest ever fuel tank fire occurred in a gasoline storage tank at the it used to be Orion the Orion facility refinery in New Orleans, Louisiana, USA, on the 7th of June, 2001. It was 82 meters in diameter and contained 37 million liters, 10 million gallons of liquid gasoline. It was successfully extinguished by Williams Fire and Hazard Control USA in just 65 minutes using a firefighting foam. 
just 65 minutes. <laughs> so yeah, let's talk about this language because there's a lot we can dissect. Well, okay, so what's weird about this language that they've employed? I mean, it's passive, like the fire occurred. Yeah, very they good. don't just happen. Very good, Nora. It's passive voice, so that means no one's taking responsibility for this action. What else is weird? Like using words like successfully. Mm -hmm. Yeah, triumph. triumph. Yeah. It's almost like it's marketing this company. Like successfully by Williams Fire and Hazard Control in just 65 minutes. Okay, yeah. that's, yeah, very weird. Another thing is it says it happens in New Orleans. As if there's no other place that exists in southern Louisiana besides New yeah. Orleans. Right. Also weird. And one final thing that I think is really weird is that we're kind of honoring this by putting it in the Guinness World Book of yeah, Records. Like, right. why are we celebrating the largest tank fire in history? So here in New Sarpy, the residents were organizing for relocation too, and they were inspired by Diamond. So they changed their community organization's name to Concerned Citizens of New Sarpy to try to like attach that name recognition. And they also really, really wanted to get a fair buyout. Now, we helped organize with them the Bucket Brigade, and we did a health study in this community. And the reason we did a health study is because burden of proof to show that like your illness came from a particular facility, it's just impossible the way the system is set up. Okay. So one thing that we can do is we could do a survey and then compare that data That's with a national doing. control That's group. So we did a health survey here. We went to residents' doors and asked them, hey, do you have cancer? Anybody in your family has cancer? Have you ever had miscarriage do you have asthma so we took this data and then compared yeah. it to a national control group and found two things respiratory problems are elevated as well as cancer cancer is also elevated sadly we were not successful even with this data to help the residents achieve a buyout and that's because this plant at the time did a very insidious thing so they hired a local minister from the community to be their public relations manager. At the time, it was Orion, it was in Valero, and he went to residents a couple weeks before Christmas and, and said, if you drop the lawsuit, you'll get $2,500. And so people started going to Miss Dorothy Jenkins, she was kind of like the leader here, uh, and saying, Miss Dorothy, you're gonna ruin my baby's Christmas, I prefer to take the buyout. And so she was like, you know what, I don't wanna fight anymore. Her husband had just died, she was sick. Her second in command, Ida Mitchell, also sick. So they dropped the lawsuit. And uh, we share this story of New Sarpy because it's a space where we can plug in as allies. As we drove to the next stop, we reflected on how big oil enmeshes itself into small communities, sponsoring pathways, funding summer camps, and offering ill-got money to ingratiate themselves in the communities they harm. We parked the car in the lot of a plantation-turned-restaurant and gathered under a large oak tree in its front lawn to discuss plantations, tourism, and petrochemicals. We're at Armand Plantation in Destrehan. Armand Plantation is one of the oldest plantation homes, although Columbia, which is next to Whitney, I think is even older than this one. So they claim to say it's always been this battle between Armand Plantation and Destrehan, who was the oldest like plantation home. Not that it matters, but anyway, I actually think Columbia probably has both of them beat. If you look at the home, you'll see that it is in the West Indies style, but it was enslaved, of course, who were the ones who were in charge of building it. They were in charge of collecting the wood, also piecing the wood together. And of course, as money became more sugar, became the big industry and the money started to flow in. You see plantation homes like this become bigger and bigger. So they went from being 
small farmhouses into bigger plantation homes. You start seeing elements of Greek revival architecture, like the columns to the front. So you're, you're seeing a mix now, right, of that money coming in and also that, that, that traditional African West Indies architecture there. But as we mentioned before, uh, the connection between petrochemicals and plantations is obvious to me at least. You have the cleared land, and I know we talk about land, you also have to think about who cleared the land, who worked the land, the indigenous, and then enslaved. Because without that, you wouldn't, you wouldn't have any place to put your property and the access to the river. I worked for the Tourist Commission for the River Parishes for like six years. So I represented a market at this home along with 10 other plantation homes along the river. And I'm happy that job is a very strange job but I'm happy that I had it because in that job, I really could see how close industry was tied to our history, into plantation, into tourism. So plantations, the tourist commission that I worked for is a political subdivision, which gives it an incredible amount of power. Actually, the, the tourist commission has just as much power, if not more, than the parish president's. And coincidentally, where is it at? It's in the highest density of petrochemical companies here. So it's by no accident that this Tourist Commission has all the power. But as a political subdivision, the Tourist Commission can actually enact bills. They can actually impose a tax on the community. They're a taxing body, too. But one of the ways that the Tourist Commission is funded is through the hotel-motel occupancy taxes. So who's, who's residing in those hotels and motels? and industry workers. So anytime a plant expands, anytime there's a turnover, the industry will book the hotels. And then that money, at least a portion of it, is going to the state and going right back into tourism. So if you think that you're going to have the Tourist Commission to fight back when our history is being destroyed or descended communities are fighting back or to protect history and culture, the Tourist Commission, quiet. Obviously, no longer work there. But we have been fighting to protect a National Historic Landmark, a National Historic Registered District with Whitney and Evergreen right there. You would think, right, that that would be something that the Tourist Commission was certainly engaged in. They have been silent. The past director actually was speaking in favor of the Grain Terminal, despite the fact that it's in this historic property and historic area. So it's just always, like, what, what's really scary about tourism is it's a Trojan heart. So when we find that a project may be too suspicious coming under from like the port of South Louisiana, it can be disguised as a project by the Tourist Commission. For example, a dock for a cruise terminal, for a cruise ship, okay? Docks are super important along the river for industry. And a lot of people did stop. We have some, many plants have been stopped in the West Bank, right? We've had about eight or nine have been stopped. That's because the community has like fought against it. So if you think the Port of South Louisiana can put a dock there and the community not come up in arms, that's not going to happen. But the port is smart enough to know, but hey, why don't we say we're bringing in a cruise ship and Viking Cruise Terminal, and by we'll make this dock for the cruise ship. And by the way, we also say it can be used for industry. So is this just tactics, y'all, that they're using? Why you can't trust tourism in this area? Why are the bodies that represent tourism, even the state, honestly, when they come with this New Orleans plantation country, still a way of holding us, trying to keep us tied to enslavement. As we contemplated the intermingling of plantation tourism and petrochemicals, we drove to our final stop, passing a flashing sign warning of chemical release as we drove. 
we arrived at St. Charles Catholic Cemetery, which stood in the shadow of billowing American and French flags. We walked through headstones and family mausoleums to a lone, flat slab of marble around which we circled. From its surface, a French inscription greeted us. It, it says, in memorial for Francois Trepigny, okay. killed by insurgent slaves the 10th of January, 1811. So yeah, this is one of the only physical pieces of, in, in, uh, of the insurrection. There's a marker at the site where it took place. It's now called the Woodlawn Plantation. At the time, I think it was the Andre Plantation. And they've been putting up more markers about this rebellion. There's like a historical, I think, virtual trail you can do now. So progress is being made in increments, but it's just really too slow. So I always like to say that like this clearly is a monument to white supremacy. It's a literal gravesite of an enslaver. But by us like coming here today and talking about these stories and the full history, we are turning it into counter monuments. This was the largest rebellion, y'all, in North America. At the height of it, academics think up to five, at least 500 people participated. It was a um, really, really big event. At the time, New Orleans and its suburbs had a population of 25,000 people. At the height of the rebellion, up to possibly 500 people participated. The demographics of the racial demographics at the time, there were... Duh. So we had 25,000 people in New Orleans and its suburb. 11,000 were enslaved, people of color. 6,000 were free people of color and 8,000 were white. So the folks who were in the river parishes at the time were terrified of the rebellion. They were leaving the plantations in droves, putting their women, children, and valuables on horse and carriage and racing to New Orleans. New Orleans at one point shut the city gates. The militia was called back. WCC Claiborne got a telegram. The militia was called back. Local people here in the region also formed like a vigilante group to meet the rebels. I have here a primary document Mr. Leon told us about. I'll pass it around. This was from an enslaver who wrote about the rebellion. It's one of the few physical pieces of evidence we have that it took place. So basically, this is a letter saying like, hey, I'm not able to give you your money on time because there was a little disturbance among the Negroes. Okay, but this was not a little disturbance. This was really, really impactful at the time. It made local news and also international use. Where was this from? This is from the Hill Library in LSU, actually. You can oh, check it out. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Uh, Mr. Leon told us about that. But he also did the research and found this newspaper clipping from the Times of London. Diamond, could you read this? Accounts received from New Orleans to the beginning of February communicate information of a very serious insurrection which has taken place among the Negroes, who had set fire to many plantations and destroyed property to a vast amount. The military, however, had been called in, and in order to subdue the rioters, they shot every man of color that came in their way. Thus, the slaughter was immense, but the proceeding effectual, it put down the insurrection. So this was a brutal way that the rebellion was put down. But what's really amazing is that it made international news, okay? Let's, let's talk a little bit about what happened. So, uh, like I said, WCC Claiborne came back with his militia. Manuel Andre organized some local vigilantes to meet the rebels. There was a skirmish around, actually, New Sarpy. 66 rebels were killed there. 16 were arrested. 17 went missing. Some people... Back into the swamp. Yes, yes, exactly. Or join maroon colonies, you know. There were some tribunals that were held. Destrahan had one. And after those tribunals, those 16 folks who were arrested were 
hung and decapitated. Their heads were put on pikes up and down the river, all the way from Jackson Square to the plantations they tried to liberate. As and a deterrent. That's interesting. As a deterrent. At Nestrahan, they are saying that there was not. A tribunal? Yeah. That's what I've read. No, that that, that is correct. But <laughs> yeah. it's just interesting that, you know, when tourists come in, I, they knew that we were from Whitney, so I think they tried to alter how they oh. went about the tour. But they did say that, you know, they did try to paint the... I can't remember what his name is, but the owner of Destrahan at the time as being kinder. Yeah, of course. Yeah. Yeah, but yeah. also I've heard that like the tribunal happened at Destrahan because like the French people in Louisiana wanted to still maintain control of Louisiana instead of like the Americans coming yes, in. Yes, that was so a- they wanted to like demonstrate that they like can like basically handle the blacks. This is definitely an undercurrent at the time, and this is also why WCC Claiborne tried to really suppress the news of this rebellion. That also could be why it's not known in the larger discourse today, you know, because he really wanted statehood for Louisiana. He wanted to show the American government that he was able to control the disparate populace here, like the French, the Spanish, the blacks, the Indians. And so he tried to suppress word of it. Obviously, it did make international news. It was huge. But that, yeah, that definitely played a role as well. Now, you may think it's it's very disgusting how the rebellion put, was put down, and you're right. But it gets worse. I have here an act from WCC Claiborne. It's in French and English. I'm going to pass it around. A lot of the enslavers did not want to murder their property, right? Because or murder these individuals. But they had to they had to kill some people to so they could serve as a lesson for other enslaved folks. Maybe, Nora, could you read this side here? An act act providing for the payment of slaves killed and executed on account of the late insurrection in this territory and for other purposes? Yes. So this WCC Claiborne reimbursed the enslavers who murdered these individuals for murdering them, right? Like, because they wanted to make sure they were compensated for that. Also, like, reimbursement for enslaved people who were killed by the police um, as a result of some kind of quote-unquote criminal action was just regular practice during this time. Like, it's normal in, like, Caribbean and, like, Caribbean documents. Like, you see that, like, there is a set amount of money for any kind of capital punishment that is meted out against an enslaved person to basically reimburse their enslaver for the, the cost. That's really, yeah, just really disgusting. And a parallel I would like to draw with this is that a lot of our banks and insurance companies have ties to the transatlantic slave trade. They used to insure, you you probably know, like folks coming in the Middle Passage. Similarly today, there are five major banks that are financing pretty much all fossil fuel extraction. Uh, Wells Fargo is one, Chase is one. There's a huge like disinvestment movement right now because these banks are financing projects in predominantly developing countries where there are racialized minorities or like places like Cancer Alley. So these are still ways that like our systems are informed by extraction and racism. So I'd like to just thank you for coming on this tour today and listening to us and including us on your podcast. I want to thank you for the work that you're doing. We can all learn from one another and I'm just happy that we were able to be here today together. And I'm going to close out with a quote by Frederick Douglass. Douglass's political thought generally in the 1850s are often remembered and interpreted for their nearly always hopeful character. 
The making of him as a political abolitionist should be grounded in the prophetic tradition in which he came to see himself. His was a kind of radical hope in the theory of mankind, in the theory of natural rights, and in a Christian millennialist view of history as humanity's grand story, punctuated by terrible ruptures, followed by potential regenerations. So we are definitely living in a rupturous time, but we have a lot of hope. Hope is a form of resistance. Joy is a form of resistance. So yeah, uh, let's, let's, keep, let's keep hoping and working towards a better world together. Thank you, y'all. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. Oh, I learned so much. After saying our final goodbyes to the Descendants Project and the Bucket Brigade, Diamond, Nora, and I discussed our final thoughts about the tour. So how do we feel? I feel angry, first of all. I think it's kind of hard to go through an experience like this and not feel angry. A lot of the things that we went through today through the tour I was aware of, a lot of things I was not aware of, um, and both things made me equally angry all over again. But I also feel empowered. It makes me feel like now I have enough information to know that silence is kind of like contributing to these systems being able to stay in place. and so. I feel like we need to mobilize. We need to do something. Yeah. I think when you're saying you feel discouraged and you're learning all this information for the first time, or like not, not all of it, but some of it even, like the point, the oil companies want, well, the big companies want, and the state really, because it's also the state's fault, just as much the state's fault as the oil companies' fault, if we're being honest, for letting them come in here. But it's like, they want you to feel discouraged, right? Like they want you to feel overwhelmed. And I think... It's important to recognize that, that that doesn't mean there isn't, you know, anything you can do. And then also just in general, I, I mean, I, I, I liked the balance of like old history and more recent history in the tour. Like I thought that was, it was pretty well balanced. And I guess like my final thoughts, I, I still like don't have enough thoughts coherent to cohere for like a full reflection on the tour. But the thing that I was like most struck by in the tour was actually the impact that being in the space for so little time had on my body. Mm-hmm. The smell of it and then also like almost like the instant headache that like, you know, a lot of us started to develop as a result of just like breathing in the air and the idea of like living in in that space mm-hmm. where it's like there is no escape. The constant kind of like low grade noise, like the constant like exposure to pollution that causes like low-grade headaches mm-hmm. like I just that was actually what was most striking just like being in this space thank you for tuning in to tilling the soil for more information on the podcast or Whitney plantation go to WhitneyPlantation.org and follow us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and TikTok. All the handles can be found in the description. Thanks for listening.